I was so grateful uh, last week to hear from Pastor Brad on the church. And I, I just love being reminded how important the local church is. Not just is it relevant, not just is it something we should be a part of, but that God is still actively working, actively going after people, actively saving people. And one of his primary tools he uses is the local church. I love that. I love that. And so I was so encouraged to hear Brad go into that. So as we continue in this series called Church Matters, I don't know, is it Church Matters? Church Matters? Church Matters? I mean, it depends on how you want to say it. But as we talk about all things related to the church, I think it's appropriate for us to take just a few moments, our time today, to really look at how did we get to where we are right now. What I mean by that is if we'll look around, if we'll just open our eyes and look around at the world we live in, it's a mess. It is filled with pain, filled with suffering, filled with sin. And I think if we're going to think rightly about the church, In our place in the world, we must understand ourselves and this world we live in. If we are to be excited about the gospel, if we're to be excited about the message of Jesus Christ, we must, and I I say we must, we must rightly understand the fall and sin. We must understand it. So today, really what I'm going to do is I want to bring to mind three truths that we need to understand. And not just understand, you know, give head knowledge to it, but we need to keep them in the forefront of our mind because they change how we live every day. But to get us started, I want to read Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of your, excuse me, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden on the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the woman said, or the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, 
and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Would you pray with me? God, I love your word. I love that it changes the way that we think. It changes what we seek. Lord, I thank you that it gives me a fresh perspective in a world that sometimes has me wanting to give up. God, would you work this morning as we think about the fall, as we think about sin, would you remind us of how great of a Savior you are, Jesus? Would this message sink into our hearts and cause us to live differently? Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. It would actually be incredibly hard to overemphasize the significance of this point in human history. I don't think I can do it. Every bit of pain, every bit of sadness, every bit of hurt, of brokenness, of loss, every bit of sin can trace its lineage back to this point in history. So what happened? What happened here? Life was so good. Adam and Eve walked in community with each other and with, with communion with God. They lived in paradise. What happened? They had been given work, good work. They had each other. They had been given leadership to function under the goodness of God. They had freedom we could only dream of. There was only one restriction placed on them. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it all changed in a moment. Put yourself in the text and and think about how good, if they would just look around, they could see paradise. But in one moment, the serpent enters the scene. He works quickly, efficiently, and expertly, tempting both Adam and Eve into rebelling against their perfect, holy, righteous, Just, good, loving God. What happened? I can't overestimate the significance of this point in history. Everything changed. And what we're going to see here, really the first truth that I need us to recognize and understand is that your greatest problem is a sin problem. And we can trace it back to Genesis 3. Your greatest problem 
is a sin problem. And news alert, not just yours, the entire world. (laughs) Me included. The greatest problem in humankind is our sin. Michael Lawrence describes the fall, and I think really well, and I want to read this to you. I think he depicts just the, the brokenness that it brings. He says, and so the fall didn't simply happen, and then we move on. Rather, it continues and deepens as creation succumbs to death and decay. Things fall apart. The center does not hold. Satan had managed to murder the souls of Adam and Eve. Cain actually murders his own brother Abel. Satan managed to drive a wedge between Adam and Eve. Lamech abandons marital union and takes two wives. Cain murdered out of jealous passion. And Lamech murders just because some guy injures him. You see how quickly, if you'll kind of read Genesis, how quickly it spirals out of control. Because of this one moment, uh, God has to put Adam and Eve out of the garden. I think it's interesting, you can see it in verse 24. He doesn't just say, hey, hey guys, I know you messed up. I'd really like you to to leave. Um, If you wouldn't mind just kind of stepping on out. No, it says, you can look in your copy of the scripture. He says, he drove them out. Or he banished them, depending on your copy. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Derek Kidner explains it in his commentary on Genesis by saying, Every detail of this verse, with its flame and sword and the turning every way, actively excludes the sinner. His way back is more than hard. It's resisted. It's resisted. He cannot save himself. So some of you may be saying, Ryan, you know, I get this, man. We've talked about this before. I know we talk about sin in our church. Um, You know, I've read Genesis 3 many, many times. But I didn't eat the fruit, dude. (laughs) I didn't pluck it off the tree. Adam and Eve did, but it's not my fault. How can you be telling me that my greatest problem is a sin problem when I had nothing to do with that? I totally get what you're saying. I've been there. I've thought the same thing. But I'm so glad that God gives us the whole counsel of God's word to to think about what really happened in this moment. Because if we just read this, we might think, well, they blew it. Too bad for them. But what does that have to do with us? Well, keep your finger in Genesis 3 and head over to Romans chapter 5. I think it's funny the minute we get out of Romans, we get back into it. I think it's because we love it and God has used it in our lives greatly. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death 
through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Romans 5 is a great example here where it says to you and to I, Adam was our representative. And when he sinned, we sinned. As the representative for mankind, we have now inherited sin that all traces its way back to this one moment. But it was just a piece of fruit, man. No, it was active rebellion against a holy God. We're going to walk through kind of the thought process behind what actually happened here in just a moment. But Romans 3.23 reminds you and it reminds me that if we are sinners, we deserve death. The wages of sin is death. We deserve eternal separation from God. So Ryan, you're being really encouraging this morning. (laughs) We're not going to end here, but we've got to sit under the weight of this. We've got to sit under the weight of the truth of the fall. And while it's not fun, and I promise you it's not popular outside of most church walls, it's actually not popular in some church walls, it is essential to your life as a Christian. Without sin, we don't need Jesus. Without sin, we don't need grace. Without sin, we don't need the gospel. Without sin, actually, Christians are just a bunch of fakers. The church is just a country club. And for 28 years, I've lost a morning of sleep. I don't give that up easily. Without sin, the church doesn't matter. Do you realize that? Do you realize without sin, we're just gathering to talk about something that really doesn't matter? A pastor I I listen to quite often, he will often say, church makes an awful club, get a boat. You'd have a lot more fun with a boat. People in the church hurt you. You get hurt. You've got to do things. We know that this truth of sin has radically altered our lives. As much as I love my three kids and our fourth one that's due here in a month, I recognize they come into the world with a sin nature already. Not only have they inherited sin, but they come in bent towards rebellion. I think I've told this story before, but I remember when Daniel was six or seven months and we were just trying to teach him how to, how, you know, no, don't touch. No, don't touch. No, don't touch. And I remember him just starting to be a little bit mobile, rolling around, reaching for stuff. And of course, cords are the best toys to little kids, right? What is it about cords? But I remember him reaching towards it. And we're training him at this point in time. I said, Daniel, no. 
And for like a moment, our eyes locked, right? He looks at me, he's like, I know you're telling me not to touch this. And he just looks at me and sticks his hand out and grabs it. Are you kidding me? I didn't teach him to do that. But he comes into the world. We all have come into the world with both inherited sin and inherited corruption. A natural bent towards rebellion. Because of places like Genesis 3 and Romans 5, we recognize that our greatest problem is a sin problem. It's not our family. It's not our finances. It's our sin. Every day, though, it's, it's not just this inheritance. In every day, we're bombarded by our own sin, whether it's our, our flesh welling up inside of us or the spiritual battle that we're in. Uh, it doesn't matter. Every day, we are tempted to go after things we don't deserve, to do things that dishonor the Lord. And this is what brings me to the second truth I want you to understand. If you are a Christian, you must get this, that your fight with sin is not over. It's not over. I love that we sang that hymn this morning that reminds us there's a time coming when we will no longer struggle with sin. We will no longer have these things welling up inside us saying, go do this. And inside we know that that's not good. There is a day coming, but today is not that day. Today is not that day. And so what I want to do now is I want to work through this temptation process that we see here in Genesis 3. And I want to show you just number one that this is why we are sinners. This interaction is why we are sinners. But I also want to show you we're no different. We struggle with the same, same temptations that Adam and Eve struggled with in that moment in the garden. I promise you, If that had been me instead of them, I'd have blown it. I'd have blown it. Don't ever start thinking that if God had only chose you to be the representative of mankind, you'd have made it right. So let's take a look at at Genesis 3 a little bit more and see what does God's word have to say about this fight that both Adam and Eve were engaged in and then we engage in every day. The serpent enters the scene in verse 1, and it says he's crafty, more crafty than any other beast in the field. And here's what he does. If I can boil it down to you in just a few phrases, here's what he does. He doubts God's word. He denies God's judgment, and he distorts God's character. We're going to walk through this in a moment, but here's what he does. He enters into this conversation with Eve. He doubts God's word. He denies God's judgment and he distorts God's character. And we know namely from Revelation and 2 Corinthians that this serpent was Satan. That he was actively at work in this tempting process. So let's read verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
I think we need to make note here that Satan doesn't kind of walk into this account just guns a-blazing. He actually just asks a question. He asks a question. Did God really say? You know, maybe I misunderstood, but did God really say? He's starting to cast seeds of doubt in the lives of Adam and Eve. Did God really say? But he didn't just ask a question. He actually added something in his question that countered what God's instructions actually were. So did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, that's not true. God was very clear with his instruction. They could eat of any tree in the garden except one. So even he, while sowing doubt, starts to doubt God's word. Add things to the instructions. Make, make God seem more like a, a, a slaver rather than a loving father. Now, unfortunately, Eve's answer in the garden doesn't stoke up a bunch of confidence. It doesn't, you don't hear her go verbatim, this is what God said. No, no. We see already that the seeds of doubt have been laid. Here's what she says. We may eat of the fruit of the, gar- of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I think it's interesting she doesn't specify the name of the tree. Um, I can't read too much into this text, so I don't want to just build a bunch of arguments off of this. But I'm a little concerned that she wouldn't just say, God said this. She kind of paraphrases a little bit. But then here's, here's what she does that's really scary. She actually makes God's law stricter than it was. Look, look, take a look at your copy of the text. It says, You shall not eat of the fruit of the garden that's in the midst, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You read Genesis 1 and 2, there's no mention of not touching it. Now, that may be true or may not be true, but what we see God commanding them is do not eat of the fruit. She's already starting to add to God's word. Add to what she thinks he meant by these things. She's making God more strict than he was. And she's only the first to do it. You look throughout history and to today, we are great at making God seem more strict than he was. Or on the flip side, acting like he doesn't care. We're very good at those opposing views. So already we see start a, vari- a variation of the instruction that God has given them. They, they feel at least some freedom to add things. That is not a people that are sitting solid on God's word. That's not a people who's trusting that what God's word is, is, is true and accurate and it will be lived by. It's just somebody who's kind of wishy-washy a little bit. So... I can only imagine um, what's going through Eve's mind at this point in time. But Satan recognizes he's not done yet. He's not done yet. He hasn't got her yet. So he moves from, from this point of questioning to then direct opposition of God's word. Here's what he says. 
In verse 4, it says, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. This is super, super significant. Because what's happening here is he, he goes from just a simple question to then putting himself in direct opposition with God. He is looking at Eve and saying, it's my way or his way. You can't have both. That's huge. He's not just sowing seeds of doubt anymore. He's actually denying the judgment of God. That surely will not happen. So at this point in time, I'm imagining Eve is probably pretty rattled. Because <laughs> what she thought she believed is being questioned. But until this moment, um, consequences really work for us in a lot of ways. They really help us think clearly. I know if that happens, ah, you know what, I'd rather not do this. But the consequences for her actions start to be put in question. He says, no, 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 God didn't really mean that. Or God didn't really say that. You will not surely die. So I can only imagine being Eve and just thinking, wow, that's a good point. Would God really kill us? I mean, he created us to care for this garden and and to work underneath him. Would God really kill us? There's no no word whether he understands the spiritual or the, the physical and how much of both that would be involved, but... If I were her, I would be thoroughly confused. (laughs) Because the judgment that I had thought was true was being questioned. But Satan couldn't just stop there once again. He recognized he couldn't just say, that won't happen because just trust me because I'm a snake. You know, he couldn't just do that. He actually had to give a why. And in his why, in his statement, he begins to distort the character of God. And once you start distorting the character of God, all bets are off. We're great at that. When we start distorting who God is, what he says, we're capable of anything if we start to believe that. If we start to distort God's character. So verse 4, he says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is really interesting. Satan actually is, is calling God power hungry, uh, domineering, uh, kind of a cosmic killjoy. He's looking at Eve and saying, God is really not good. God really doesn't care about you. God really doesn't love you. And he doesn't know what's best for you. He's just trying to keep you down. He distorts the character of God. She took the bait. She took the bait. She took the fruit. She ate it. She gave it to her husband who noticed he was standing right next to her and did nothing. He abdicated his role to love and care for his family. And their eyes were opened. You see that in the text? But what they saw scared them. They were afraid. They were filled with shame. 
they ran from God. They ran. All the pain, anguish, sadness, sickness, hardship, all of our sin in the entire history of humankind and the future and the present can be traced back to this one moment of distorting God's character, not trusting that he's good and not obeying his word. Through this, you and I have inherited both guilt and corruption. We're naturally bent towards rebellion. Our guilt requires the wrath of God to be justified and taken care of, to be paid. And you know what? Let's just be really honest. Our struggles are very similar to what Adam and Eve went through. Think about your own sin, your own fight with sin. Can you name one time that you couldn't trace it back to either doubting God's word, denying his judgment, or distorting his character? Whether it's losing your patience with your family and not trusting that they are put in your life for your own good and your own growth. Or maybe it's denying God's judgment, really just seeing your sin is really not that big of a deal. Or looking around and saying, you know what, yeah, they're sinners, but let's deal with the other issues. That's not a big deal. Or maybe it's distorting the character of God. Every moment of doubt, every moment of struggle, almost always is traced back to a moment in time where you're not believing that God is good. You're not believing that he's in in control. You're not believing that he cares, that he loves you, and he's got your best in mind. All of our sin can be traced back to at least one, if not all of them combined. So are you doubting God's word? Or are you building your life upon it? Much of our own sin comes from a lack of confidence that what God's word says is really true. Are you convinced of God's promised judgment of sin? Or do you look lightly at your own sin or the sin of others? promise you the fight isn't over. Are you guilty of distorting God's character, trying to fit him in a box or excuse your own behavior? Or do you hold tightly to the character of God that you see in scripture? The fight isn't over. This is so incredibly helpful for me when I think about my own sin and when I'm trying to get to the root of sin. So often, I can just tie it back to, I don't trust that you, God, love me. I don't trust that what you say is good for me. I don't trust your word. We are both guilty and corrupt. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Sin truly is our greatest problem and the world's greatest problem. So is there any hope? Is there any hope? This is a mess. I know some of you are in some pretty big messes. Some of them you haven't done anything to contribute. Some of them you have. But when we look around, we see this mess. Well, I promise you there is some hope, but it's actually found here in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So let's read these together. The Lord God said to the serpent, 
Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I find it interesting that there's no questioning of the serpent. He doesn't ask him questions like he did the man. He just pronounces his judgment. But this little back end of verse 15 is the most important piece we can look at. It says, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is a glorious gospel proclamation. Many theologians call this the proto-evangelium or the first glimpse of the gospel, the first proclamation of the gospel to come. Listen, even before he pronounces his judgment over mankind and woman, over, you know, that work will be hard and that woman's childbearing will be hard, all that we see in the curse, even before he gets to them, he's made a plan for a savior. That's good. That is good to sit under and recognize that God saw ahead of that and made plans for you and for me. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 5 really quickly as we, I want to read the next few verses. Because what I want you to see is that in Genesis 3.15, there's a, an announcement of a coming Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 15 of Romans 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounding for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. Jesus says in his ministry, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the man that was referenced in 315. He is the man who could come and live a perfect life and die the death on the cross. We could not die to pay for that sin. We had zero chance of paying for. And he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Is there hope? Yeah, there is. And it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses, actually I should just say it, it's my favorite verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it reads like this. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake. What a great declaration of love. I mean, we know that God is about his own glory. He does things for his own glory, but he does not hesitate to look down at you and say, I love you. You are mine. 
He made him to be sin. That's the next phrase. God knew we needed someone who could be our substitute. Someone who could bear the weight of our sin and take it on himself once for all. Who knew no sin. That's the next phrase. He took someone who was perfect and it took him, someone who could be without sin, to rescue us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that means, friends, is that when God looks down on you, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, he doesn't see your filthiness. He doesn't see your awful sin. What he sees is the work of Christ on your behalf. When he sees you, he sees the perfect obedience of Christ. So when you're feeling beat up by sin, when you feel like all you do is doubt God's word or deny his judgment or distort his character, this is the truth you've got to return to. That God sees Christ in you. He sees Christ in you. I'd like to ask the worship team to join me, as well as those who will be serving communion with us. So why, Ryan, would we spend so much time talking about sin? Why would we spend so much time talking about the fall? Because I truly believe a weak and unbiblical view of the fall will cripple you. It'll cripple your life and your ministry. If you just believe you just needed a little bit of help, you will have zero compassion on the lost. If you just needed a little bit of help, the gospel's really not that exciting. But if you understand the wickedness of our hearts, that we had no hope without the gospel, then you can be excited about Christ. You can go into your workplace and talk to them about Christ because you know the biggest problem out there is sin and you've got the best answer. Jesus Christ. You want the confidence to speak up? Well, if sin is the world's greatest problem, then you have the greatest hope. You want to have the courage to stand You've got to understand the gospel and your own depravity and then the redemption that comes through Christ. You want to have the heart to sacrifice? You've got to work at home to put your own sin to death, your own flesh to death, so that when you have opportunities to sacrifice, it's normal for you. You know what it takes. Can you imagine what Northern Kentucky would look like if its churches were just as devoted to recognizing the sin in the world as their savior? Can you, can you think with me for a moment how that would motivate you in your schools, students? In your workplaces? In your neighborhoods? If you would let this truth sink in and wreck you you will be ready to be used by God. Your biggest problem is a sin problem. And so is everyone's. Your fight with sin is not over, I promise you. But trust in God's word and his character. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. I stand here today, one big fat sinner saved by grace. There's no hope 
outside of Christ. Pray with me. God, thinking about sin is hard. We don't like to feel like failures. We don't like to recognize our rebellion. Both inherited and committed, we just don't like this. But God, we must understand the fall if we're going to rejoice in our Savior. So Jesus, I pray that you would make us a people that rejoice in our Savior because we know our sin. And we know that our sin no longer defines us. We are defined by our identity in you, Jesus Christ. That you, God, when you see us, you see the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. Oh God, make us a people who have the courage to stand, the confidence to speak up, and the heart to sacrifice. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray.